Welcome to the Rabrukin Podcast. We are in the month of February, 2021. The following conversation was recorded on February 9th, 2021. I am joined once again by Mr. Lupin Proles from lupinproletariat.org. We here in America are still feeling the trauma of the January 6th spectacle, the storming of the Capitol. And although the insider of the mob is no longer in office, there's still the looming question about the 74 million Americans who did vote for Trump in November, November 2020, and the 45 senators who are still devoted to their Lord and Savior, Donald Trump, and where those folks might lie on the spectrum of racism and hate. There's also the question of how many of our American military support fascism and racism, as many of those charged with insurrection and tied to extremist hate groups were military veterans and active U.S. military. Join us as we discuss this and other issues which continue to divide the citizens of this great nation. All right, so here we are. The date is February 9th, 2021. Monday morning, or Monday afternoon, that is. So we're talking about the, uh, the fact that we, we maybe have not come very far as far as any progress in civil rights or workers' rights or prosperity of the general labor since the 1960s and probably gone backwards. Indeed. And we were just talking about, uh, I guess you could say, the systematic killing of people fighting for uh, human rights, such as the Black Panthers, uh, by the FBI, by the U.S. government. That's right. And we're talking about uh, the grip that Amazon has <coughs> on seems to have on the entire market of uh, the United States right now. That's right. We were talking, you were asking about labor, and then I kind of narrated 20th century, a big, broad overview sketch of 20th century U.S. labor history. Right. A little bit, from what I know. I would refer you to Steve, a colleague of mine, Steve Zelter, acquaintance, for a much more thorough... Much more thorough... History. Yeah. Yeah, he has a labor show, or he did have a labor show on KPFA. We ran for the KPFA local station board in 2010 on a slate called Voices for Justice with a Kurdish woman named Suraya Sayadi. And uh, one of the big issues we were campaigning, <coughs> excuse me, one of the big issues we were campaigning on Demanding uh, Free Speech Radio KPFA have a labor show. Yeah. Show show about labor. (laughs) Yeah, since you were bringing that up. Yeah. You're like, hey, there's low union density. There's not very much unionization, is there? Uh, Lumpen, you asked me. Yeah, yeah. And I guess... uh, And I said, that's right. Very good observation. (laughs) Yeah, we also discussed the the point of view that most uh, people have on unionized workers and uh, unions in general, that they're lazier, slower, uh, you know, negative kind of connotations <laughs> to, to that. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, unions get a bad rap. They get a bad rap. Yeah. <laughs> unions have a bad reputation in yeah. American politics or American discourse. Right, right. Yeah, anyway. But I think to say that people... Our pussies is like a fucking, you know, it's a profane way of saying that people are not 
standing up for themselves or people or not. Yeah, it's a profane way to say a complex thing, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, a simplified way yeah. to say something yeah. probably complex. Like I think of the people that I listen to, the broadcasters on KPFA that I look up to as intellectually, you know, um, worthy of critique. And then what their critiques would be of such a thing. Yeah. Um, but um, it's a complex phenomena that, that I'm describing. And I think I want to speak to the 74 million uh Quote unquote, the quote unquote 74 quote unquote million. 74 million that voted for Donald Trump? Yeah, they rejected Biden. Right. And one of their talking points is uh, the elimination of masculinity. And I talked to, you know, a who, uh, somebody who I, I consider an ally, but who doesn't consider me an ally. Okay. Uh, a, uh, a fellow black person who shall remain nameless. <clears throat> someone who I've known from around the KPFA scene for, for years, but I've never talked to, you know, and I should have talked to him a long time ago. Yeah. I reached out to him, but I was insecure. Right. You know, I was barely had the confidence to, you know, immerse myself into the KPFA crowd after listening for years. Okay. And in the Bay Area. <clears throat> so it sounds like you felt like you weren't, uh, your experience level... To be involved in the whole uh, um, free speech media thing, uh, you didn't feel that confident about getting in there and talking to them. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, you don't see a whole lot of people of color speaking out politically anymore since the Black Panthers. Oh, really? I wonder why. I don't know, because the government kills them? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, you know, like... Who was the last person there, Mumia Jabbar? Mumia Abu Jamal. Jamal. (laughs) Jamal, yes, he's on death row. Um, That's a movie right there. Yeah, there's been no movie about Mumia. That's a movie right there. The move, the bombing of the move house. Right, yeah. When the Philadelphia police dropped a bomb, like with a helicopter, onto their house... Damn. That's when you know the government is afraid of that, activism. That's paramilitary. I say I, I would say that a military person would say that is a paramilitary act on native soil. Yeah, that was like a counterinsurgency type of thing. I mean, you know, it was a compound of the, the, the MOVE organization. I believe his name was John Africa, who was the leader and uh, who Mumi Abu Jamal, you know, uh, was associated with at the time of his arrest. Yeah. And he was an up-and-coming journalist. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, you know, we're digressing all over the place. But the point is that the 74 million have an argument about the emasculation of men, right? And, you know, I've been called a snowflake on my website, you know, by right-wingers. And, <clears throat> you know, I don't want to provoke anyone you know, I want to refer people to my spiritual mentor, uh, Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh, who teaches us how to not just like work for peace, but be peace. Right. You know. Right. And I refer people to Bruce Lee, who says, you know, be like water. You know. Yeah. The the you know the water crashes against the rock and breaks. You know, but comes back together. Yeah, yeah. The water can take the form of the glass or it can take any form. Right. Um, The water can break rock. 
over time. So <clears throat> I don't know what type of snowflake the right winger thought I was, but you know, I am very happy to get into the ring with anybody. Yeah. Because I love pugilism. <laughs> My uncle taught me everything he could about boxing. Yeah. And I love boxing. Yeah. I love combat sports. But I realize that, you know, there's a problem with the sport. You know, I also refer people to Dr. Gerald Horn's new book, yeah. uh, which was just discussed on Pacific Radio recently, which was about boxing. <laughs> and I made this point, uh, you know, to uh, dear old dad, when I talked to dad, uh, to my father. Yeah. And I said, you know, the black man can never win because... Right, I remember you mentioning something about this. The black man... This was just in passing about like just all the bullshit in society about how like Dr. Gerald Horn talked about boxing and you know uh, I believe his name was uh, Jack Johnson the boxer he had the tendency of smiling said Dr. Gerald Horn when he would box and <laughs> and he would be boxing and he would be like you know bobbing and weaving and and he would be, and he would have a tendency of smiling when he knocks the other guy, when he knocks him out. Uh, okay. <laughs> was that that guy in the Morrissey cover? No, a black guy. boxer, man, black in the boxer, United States, okay, a okay. famous black boxer. <laughs> man, where's your phone? Fact check this here, Jack Johnson. Right. And, and you can you can you can you can inform the audience with factoids. Anyway. He had the tendency of smiling, okay. you know, and then when he would knock the, the white, knock most of the white boxers gonna be white dudes, and knock them, knock them out. Well, the sports writers went crazy. They yeah. hated that. They gave a lot of fodder for. Uh, They're like, look at him. He, he's enjoying it as he as he as he knocks this guy out. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's oh oh, look how sadistic he is, or whatever, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so then he had he adjusted his his stage presence on the on the in the, his ring presence. Let's call it. Okay. And then he had a, a somber face when he would knock out his guys now. When he'd knock out his opponent. And then what do the sports writers say? The white writers say, oh, look at this guy. Oh, now he looks like he like we're at a funeral. Now it's all like he's the undertaker now. Well, like, he, oh, he's, a dour look on wait, his face. Wait, what did you say? He's somber when what? When now... So they didn't he's, like when he smiles when oh, he knocks so the guys out. So now, now he had somber. a serious face. Oh, so he changes that. He his, changed up his demeanor now when he knocks him out. Now he keeps a serious face. But right. then they complain, oh, look at him now. He's, he's like a, a, the Undertaker now with this grave look on his face when he knocks right, him out. Right, right. The black man can't win. Right. When the white man is a boxer and he wins, oh, look at the gallant. Look what a gentleman he is. Yeah. When the black guy wins, when the black guy is boxing, he's a brute. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, you know, Muhammad Ali wins and now oh, he's a brute. You know, he, he's a savage. You know what I mean? Right. And he, uh, Muhammad Ali, took the strategy of some of those ring wrestler dudes you know what i mean that would build up an audience by by being a heel you know they would be the bad guy the villain okay yeah, yeah. yeah. you know but it's all a shill it's all a, an act you know what i mean behind the stage all they're all charade. buddies they yeah. just want to get just tickets and get paid right they you know wanna, what I mean? yeah the exercise yeah. but he saw the power of the theater of it right yeah, yeah. so muhammad ali played up the villain aspect of it okay you know what i mean because he knew people were going to want to come the white dude people going to want to come to see him get knocked the fuck out right like knock out this black guy right yeah you know, and of course, eventually he would get knocked out. But for the most part, he would, would be winning, right? But just yeah. the fact of how like black people can't win, right. you know what I mean? You even have a black athlete who then like rises to the ranks of success in a big a game, uh, the 49ers, 
And then he is upset about cops killing people for no reason. And he yeah. takes a knee in a silent protest. And even that's not good enough. Yeah, yeah. What the fuck? Like, you can't do anything. Black people can't say shit. Yeah. And then Hispanics really, they, they can't really say shit, but they don't say shit either. You know what I mean? I don't know. You know, like, I don't look, when I look around for big national leadership in the United States, I don't see black people and I don't see brown people. Right. You know what I mean? I see Malcolm X and I see Dr. King. And I see Chavez somewhere going on hunger strikes, which is awesome. Yeah. But really, I see King and I see X. Right. You know, and I think that we need to pick up the baton of where they were at. You know, but we're digressing all over the place, but so it's okay. It so, uh, yeah, so this is what we call talk therapy. So, John Arthur Johnson says here in Wikipedia, he was born March 31st, 1878, died June 10th, 1946. Nicknamed the Galveston Giant. He was an American boxer who, at the height of Jim Crow era, became the first African-American world heavyweight boxing champion, 1908 to 1915. So, it says, yeah, widely regarded as one of the most influential boxers of all time. One of the period's most dominant champions. And as a boxing legend, his 1910 fight against James J. Jeffries was the, the fight of the century. That's so, right. yeah, you're saying... Uh, yeah, so going back to the smile and the th- when you knock a guy out. Um, I, when I've been watching sports these days. I watched the Super Bowl on Sunday. And I've been thinking about uh, what is considered to be sportsmanlike conduct. And I'm wondering if smiling at a guy after you knock him out, where is that line of spectrum of <laughs> sportsmanlike conduct? Yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, it, it, you know, it was always one of the funniest penalties to me uh, in the NFL. It, it, and it just kind of makes me laugh because, it, you know, okay. Yeah, I, I believe very much in being a sportsman. You know, and, and uh, you know, if you lost, you lost. You're not going to fucking <laughs> complain to the, to the judge or the referee. Yeah, you're it, not going to whine you're, about it. You're not going to whine about it. You're not going to blame this guy or that guy or say my teammate did it or, you know, you know, you just fucking, you know, take a defeat and, and you know, try again, you know, or whatever. Re- revise your strategy. But anyway, um, yeah, that's just one of the things I've been thinking about uh, as far as... Uh, I think it has to do with ethics. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It and, does. Sportsmanlike conduct does have to do with ethics. And I would venture to say, or to me, that's one of the most important things in the world. Period. Ethics. Ethics. Yeah. And, and that more, goes down to business. Morality. Yeah. That goes down to religion. But anyway, you were saying um, about talking about the 74 million, or what was it, uh, that voted for Trump? Yeah, and uh, the 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 masculinity issue. Yeah, and would you say that's one of the main selling points? Because I haven't done very much research as far as um, what I could say is the other side from the the from where I'm looking. Uh, somebody like Trump could never be my ally. Right, right. Yeah, that's a great question. Before we get to that great question, I just want to tell the audience that that book, by the way, by Dr. Gerald Horn is called The Bittersweet Science. Okay. The Bittersweet Science. Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing by Dr. Gerald Horn. 
and it basically goes through how like all these black boxers you know have just been given a raw deal man you know what i mean like right from jack johnson to muhammad ali yeah to mike tyson you know like all of them you know what yeah I mean? see and i kind of i kind of want to go into know, more of that of, of that subject of the problem of masculinity and immasculinity that uh it that that has different effects depending on uh what race somebody is that's right so yeah so let's let's get back to your question you know to stay focused yeah so your question was a great question because i just heard um on pacifica radio experts addressing this question and i believe it was democracy now that had a hispanic uh a leader of some national prominence who was talking about like uh the hispanic community and how they can be susceptible to uh the rhetoric of the trump train yeah which probably the rhetoric because is, of the machismo yeah so the rhetoric is is saying that men are losing their masculinity right yeah and it's just tapping into it just as a, a, a fear. just as an identity not even a fear just, just as, as a identity. badge of honor yeah just as a badge of honor i mean so um, is that part of what makes america great again of the whole MAGA, of the whole, of the whole MAGA phenomenon, yeah, that's yeah. a big part of it, and that does explain a lot of why a lot of the Hispanics that got pulled into that got pulled into that, right? Um, because of the whole macho uh, aspect of it, um, but because we don't know what it is to be a man right now, I contend, we contend, mm, yeah, okay, the lumpen proletariat and the proletarians, yeah, you know that are that are with us at lumpenproletariat.org we contend that we are learning what it means to be a man right now right because we know that it does not mean that we dominate our women we know that we don't want to have women that don't think for themselves yeah i'll agree with that you know but we know that we don't want women that are going to push us around either yeah so the battle of sexes has been going on but it's also been manipulated we say by the state Hmm. so each person has to be authentic to themselves. And then when they're authentic to themselves, they need to find like-minded people that can help them be authentic to reality. Yeah. Because we used to say, be true to yourself, be true to yourself. But what does that mean? Are you going to create your own reality? No, you're not. Right. You, we, none of us know what reality is until we talk to somebody. That's why we're here on this podcast talking to, talking to each other. Yeah. To break yeah. through the isolation of the pandemic, yeah. COVID-1984 pandemic. I don't pandemic. want to go off the subject we're on right now, but I think uh, perception of reality and having a specific reality for each person, each whatever kind of group you're from, what kind of tribe you want to subscribe to, that's one of our big problems right now. It is, it is. Yeah. That's a very good point yeah. that you make. So uh, going back to... Uh, Matt Taibbi, when, when, by the way, makes that point also in his journalism, where okay. he says that all the journalism is in his little silos, yeah. you know what I mean? It's very a very famous was, journalist. Something that was mentioned in that uh, popular Netflix documentary, The uh, the Social Dilemma. People are getting their own rabbit holes in the in the media, in their or social media, that everybody can have their own personalized reality. Yeah. If they subcri- subscribe to it. Yeah. And now there's something even more evil, though, and it's called the algorithm. Right, and the algorithm. Yeah. And some of my friends have always told me, you know, like, oh, watch out for the YouTube because the algorithm is going to drive you in certain directions or whatever. Right. And I do see that happening. Like, for example, I'm into bodybuilding, yeah. natural bodybuilding. I'm not into, you know, uh, super supplements. Um, but uh, 
sometimes I'm interested in bodybuilding and then I'll just the algorithm just sends me all all bodybuilding stuff and See I get I sick think? of it so I'll break the algorithm and then I'll make a deliberate search for some Noam Chomsky or for right, something yeah. else you know what yeah. I mean but I have to deliberately take myself out you of the algorithm yeah. and then and then but if I get hypnotized and if I just keep following what the algorithm is feeding me then I'm stuck yeah. you know what I mean and yeah. I brought up the algorithm because I want to also celebrate uh, an, uh, a thinker that I respect very much, who I met during the Occupy Wall Street days, uh, yeah. whose name is Alexa O'Brien. And mm-hmm. I had the privilege of interviewing her uh, during the Occupy Wall Street days. And she said something that stuck with me all these years. And it, I finally got it, like, for real, like, after seeing what happened on January 6th. Okay. And as she said back then during the Occupy Wall Street days, she said, the culture wars are over. Everyone lost. Right. And I kind of got what she was saying back then, but I couldn't believe it. Hmm. It's like, dude, everybody's fighting against each other, but for what? We are already all of us lost already. Right. And she was mentioning about the algorithm on Hard Knock Radio one day, and then David D interviewed her, and then uh, and then David D was like, oh, whoa, the, the algorithm was, whoa, yo, you blowing my mind, like you know, like yeah. oh, like because the the Occupy Wall Street people, you know, the activists, the anarchists, the intellectuals, the people that plan this stuff, yeah. you know, she was one of the founders that started Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. Alexa O'Brien. She was okay. with this group called USDA of Rage. Okay. There was also another group called Take Back the Square. Yeah, yeah. sorry. That was back when, uh, 2003 or something? 2011 and 11 12. Or 12. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And don't be sorry. That's a very good question. Yeah. You know what I mean? Definitely stop me. You know what so I mean? So anyway, uh, going back to this uh, people are pussies thing. When you say that, do you mean like uh, uh, they should uh, beef up their bodies for physical combat or, either, or they should stand up for what they believe in or they should... Sh- that's a great question, a, yeah. From a confrontation. That's a great question. Because um, my point of view, well, in my life, my experience, I've always been a pretty small, scrawny guy. and But I never backed down from a fight. And I always had the point of view that, like, well, I guess this is my time to go. <laughs> but, but I get a fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and most of the time, I, I, most of the time I didn't get into a fight. It, you know, they backed down. Yeah. And, and they like in dis- disbelief like well, what does this guy get to pull out a knife or what does this guy got some secret or something <laughs> but uh but that's the way i always look at it. like you got to stand up for yourself and, and i always look at it like okay well i guess i'm probably gonna die right now but i went out with a fight yeah well <laughs> you've got the fighting spirit yeah i guess i do not everybody has that yeah. not ev- not not everybody's been in a fist fight yeah I've Almost been nobody's like, been in a fist fight anymore. I've probably been in like four fights in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's scary. I mean, when you're, it's traumatizing. You know what I mean? Like it's, you know, it takes a lot, like, to get through something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You really need a, you know, you need a support social network. Like, if all of your friends were there and supported you, and then you know you defended yourself, and then you got yeah. through it. Then so, you don't really feel traumatized and then you learn how to defend yourself. But it, it can go wrong, too, because once you learn how to defend yourself, the power can go to your head. And then you yeah. can start to become, you know, this this asshole that, that thinks, yeah, that thinks that you can beat up anybody you and want you whenever become, you feel like uh, you. Um, narcissistic, I guess. You start to become narcissistic. Yeah. yeah. You start uh, abusing people, I guess. Yeah. You start to abuse and your power. looking for chances to abuse. <laughs> <laughs> you said abuse. Yeah. When but, you have a hammer in your hand, everything starts to look like a nail. Yeah. So anyway, like... Um, but yeah, so that's how, the answer. How would people go I, about... So, so I want to answer your question, yeah. you know? What I mean is, you know, like... I When I see pussies everywhere, what I mean is... I see people with no willpower. 
And I see people without uh, the resolve to uh, stand up for their principles yeah. or to stand up for even their own will right. or to even create their own boundaries around themselves and to say, no, no, no. Yeah, no, that's not cool with me. You know, like, no, okay. no. like okay. I totally reject I think, that. You I think know? that's like, a good point. Yeah. Because when you value yourself, you respect yourself. You don't let anybody disrespect you. Yeah. And it doesn't have to get to the point where you're going to fight somebody, you know, like because somebody disrespected you. But, you know, you already like distance yourself from disrespectful people way before that point ever happened. Yeah. You okay. know, but so... It's a big question. It's a philosophical question. You know, like we could just have fun riffing on it for a long time. But I think in the interest of time and in the interest of listeners, like we really want to try to just get to the point as soon as possible. Right. Yeah. So it's a philosophical point that I'm only going to sketch right now. And it's to say this, that the male identity is going through changes. Mm -hmm. And you also have male identities that are. Uh, influenced by your own ethnicity. Yeah. So you have a white male identity. You have a Hispanic male identity. You have a black male identity. And that's not even, that's not even accurate enough. Right. You know, there's not just one black male identity. You know, there's multiple. You know what I mean? There's like the college educated, you know, upper middle class bourgeois type. And there's like, you know, the lumpen proletariat type, you know, there's the everywhere in between type, right? You know, like, so, um, But once we start to see, okay, yeah, there are identities that have to do with what it is to be male, right? Yeah. And as we go through the changes that expose toxic masculinity, there is a threat to some men that, hey, wait a minute, man, you're taking everything that it is to be me, you know what I mean? To be a man, you know what I'm saying? So So they can rail against that. And that sensibility can be weaponized by demagogues like Trump. And Trump's not the only demagogue, which, by the way, today is the impeachment trial. Today is a very important day in U.S. history. Yeah. Because we could have went fascist, you know, if Trump would have had his way, if he would have stayed in power. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the the country's asleep and they don't care. Nobody really cares. Even KPFA wasn't going to broadcast the impeachment trials, but I I I digress. To put it in perspective, I mean, the word fascism, like... You you'd said proto fascism. Proto fascism. Yeah. Like uh, to say we fascism, could, we're all we're automatically going to think two names: Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini. Yeah, we could have gone fascist, but we're you know not, by the proto fascist attacks. It's not that extreme, right? But it's pretty close. It would have been if he stayed in power. The Republican Party goes along with it. Yeah. The police go along with it. The military goes along with it. We're done. It's yeah, over. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. We're done. And even Tom Hartman was talking about this thing. And Tom Hartman defended the military industrial complex today. That scallywag. (laughs) You know, he's a great liberal on Pacifica Radio that exposes right wing, you know, BS. But at the same time, he only goes so far, you know. Yeah. And he said, oh, well, you know, Trump didn't have the support that he needed to pull off what he wanted to pull off. He had some support among the police and some support among the Republican Party. Yeah. But he didn't consolidate it all to become a full-on dictator. Right, right. Because he didn't have the full support of the military, yeah, okay. said Tom Hartman today, yeah. interviewed by Sonali Kolhakar, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, which was a rerun, I believe, from the day before. But you know, Now, I, that's bullshit. I have what a hard we time. thought was, let me, let me finish Go this ahead, real quick. Yeah. What we thought was that 
the military saw that Trump was a fool. And they yeah. said, you know what? We don't want to go through with him being the useful idiot dictator. Mm. We want to wait for the next train. Right. We want to wait for a smarter dictator. Yeah, see, that's... that's that, the that the military-industrial complex was like, ah, ah. See, okay, we almost took over in a fascist dictatorship, but this guy's an idiot. He's going to mess it up, so let's wait for the next guy. See, yeah. I don't know, but that, this is all speculative. I refer well, people to the yeah. Gray Zone, Max Blumenthal, Abby Martin, Empire Files, people like that. Sheer Post. See, see, that brings me to something I was... Uh, or uh, A doubt I have is that I doubt that 90%... Or, or I, I, I think... I think it's more likely that about 90% of the military, 90% of our police force is in agreement with the fascist state. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, the whole blue wall, like, I don't, I don't, the culture of the police is like white supremacists through and through. in the military, I don't really believe there's a lot of dissent about going into the right and going into towards Go- fascism. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's probably the point that there's this no guy, doubt. And yeah. and Tom Hartman, this is what he said. Sorry, yeah. Tom Hartman said, "Oh, those guys, they they're very strong on the Constitution," mm. and that's why that really pissed me off. You know, like, yeah. oh, come on, Tom, the military-industrial complex is strong on the Constitution. Come on, you only said that because nobody can call you out on it. Yeah, you know, that's yeah, bullshit. So like, uh, but but the whole pussy thing, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It is a real thing that's happening as we go through these social changes. You know what I mean? And I also wanted to talk about the generational changes that are happening in society. Because I started to write about this on my blog, on lumpenproletariat.org, about the wild people. Uh-huh. We remember how people used to be in the 70s. Uh-huh. You know, in the United States, people used to pull over on the side of the road. And you'd have a six-pack of beer in your trunk. Yeah. Anyway, like but you're probably too far away there, but I'm saying <laughs> you, anyway, you're kind even, of right there. even in popular culture, yeah, it was reflected in popular culture. We can we can watch a movie with Eddie Murphy, yeah, uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Okay, back in the eighties, and he's being tailed by two like detectives, yeah, and he's a Detroit cop looking like a lumpen proletarian, okay. like a riffraff, right? Yeah, yeah, and then they're they're following him, and he's like this wise guy, slick guy, right? And he's like. Hey, what's up, guys? What are you guys doing? And he gets out of his car so he doesn't get pulled over, knowing that they're cops. Yeah. And he comes around the car. They, he opens the trunk and he pulls out a cooler with a uh, styrofoam cooler with beer and ice. And then he opens up a beer and opens it and starts sipping on it. Like, I'm cool now. You can't arrest me now, right? I'm not driving. I'm just chilling here having a beer. What the fuck? <laughs> this my, is in a main major well, movie, right? Mind you, mind you, back in those That's days. That's what the culture was like in the United States. It was free. Yeah. In the 1980s, you could... Uh, Take a 12-pack of Coors, go in the back of a, of a pickup truck, in the back of the truck, drink beers, drive around. Yeah. That that was the norm. You were free. Right. People were free. Like, this is what I wanted to also talk about, is the intergenerational changes, because young people don't know this. Yeah, they, they don't know. They don't know what the United States was like before 30 years ago. this fascist police state took over. Okay, yeah. Now, that's a big word, fascist, right? And, and, you know, the actions on January 6th were proto-fascist. We're not really fascist. We're proto-fascist. I have to catch myself. Yeah. But we've been watching this for years. If you go, if 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 all of you guys go to IndieBay.org, you know, this was Independent Media Center that started after 9-11. Yeah. Independent journalism. And then they have a whole section on police state issues. 
You know, you never see news reporting, news websites that have a, they have like, you know, uh, politics, uh, business, uh, maybe environment, you know. They don't have a section that says police state, yeah. you know what I mean, that acknowledges that we live like in a proto-fascist society. Right. Because you only see that if you live in, in, in poor, low-income communities. Right. You only see that if you live in the ghetto. Yeah. You know what I mean? Middle-class people that watch the news or whatever, they don't know what's going on in, in, in the hood or the ghetto. And then they hear about places like Oakland and they get a caricature picture in their mind. Right. And they think, oh, that's just they're just animals. They're just doing and, that to themselves. And on top of that, you know what they're showing on the news is that uh, in Chinatown in Oakland, that uh, assaults, violent assaults are rampant on elderly Chinese people right now. That people are just going around pushing down old people. And a, a squad of Asians uh, actually started of young Asian people. They're just monitoring the streets. They're like the Black Panthers now. Yeah. That's what the Black Panthers were doing. They were just basically like community watch, but watching the cops instead of the, you know, the supposed criminals. Quote, yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, that's very important that you bring that up because the animosity against Chinese people. Max yeah. Blumenthal was at the events on January 6th. Okay. And you know what he heard when he was there? What did he hear? About people, the, the actual people there. They were chanting stuff against China and Chinese people. Okay. That's not... Uh, so this is a right-wing talking point. Yeah. You know? And then you parallel that. You, you, you link that up with Trump and how he was bashing China for four years. Right. You know what I mean? And then if you investigate the podcasts that right-wingers listen to, I bet you will find all this right-wing uh, propaganda that's against China. Right. And who is against China? The military-industrial complex. Yeah, okay. Obama, as reported by uh, uh, Global Research, Dr. Michelle Chosodovsky, way back in the Obama days, that they had the Asia-Pacific pivot. The whole um, war machine against terrorism was just kind of petering out and fading. Okay. So they're like, you know what? Our real problem, maybe it's not even fading. It's just the fact that, like, priority-wise, the, the the China is out-competing economically the United States. Yeah. Eclipsing yeah. the United States. And they're like, oh, crap. We need to do something. We need to undermine and, their economy somehow. And I would say that a war with China right now would be a very dangerous situation. Of course. A war with it, anybody it is dangerous. Be, but, but that would be like a, another Cold War. It would be... It would be they're, well, they're powerful. We're in a Cold War right now, though. Yeah, well, at least we are, yeah. Do you know but, with which country? Uh, no. What country are we in a Cold War with? With Iran. With Iran, okay. Yeah. And it's been going on for 40 years. Yeah. Do you think this has anything years. to do with petroleum? Uh, well, yeah. Or I mean, does it, it does. Have to do with sphere of influence it does. over it the does. Arab, Arab uh, uh, countries? It's got to do with all of that, but, you, you know... Jeremy Scahill and the Intercepted podcast, the American mythology, the presidency of Donald Trump, played clips of Donald Trump in speeches, uh, rapidly saying, take the oil, take the oil, <laughs> literally like that. And it's funny, uh, Dave Chappelle back in, what was it, when he had the Chappelle show, like 15, 20 years ago, <laughs> when he did the Black Bush skit, if, if Bush was black, yeah. he's all, yeah, let's go to, let's go to fucking Iran, Iraq. Give me that oil. Huh? I mean, uh, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But now yeah. it's just blatant. Like, yeah, yeah, let's fucking go there and take the oil. <laughs> yeah. Well, the only problem, man, the critique that we have to give now for comedians 
is that they're targeting the wrong target. Preaching, you know, preaching to the choir. The yeah. guilty party now is not like, you know, to expose the corruption of the Democrats and the Republicans. We already know that. Yeah. Now the target to expose is the corruption of us. Yeah. Yeah. Americans are hedonists. All yeah. we care about is pleasure. Yeah. We don't care about social justice. Some of us do. Um, but for the most part, there's no mass protests. So going going back to the uh, seven, there's no mass outrage. Going back to the seventy four million and the motives behind them, um, do you think that? Well, I think I think it's been uh, suggested that hedonism or morality is part of um, their gripe with the other half of the country or whatever. The seventy four million don't understand the concept of hedonism. It's not in their vocabulary. Well, they um, know the word, you know, I'm exaggerating, but I'm yeah, saying right, it's right, not right. in their schema of like so you think values, not, right. you know what I mean? The, for them, I, hedonism is individualism, you know what I mean? For them, individualism is a virtue. Okay. Oh, they enjoy being individualistic. How about this? Um, do you think, uh, or what would you think, what would you say that the religious background of most of these people are? Well, there's the Christian, you know, nationalism of it. You know, right. and there's the Christian fundamentalism of it. There's a Christian apocalypse narrative that says that, you know, Israel will be in a big end of times conflagration and then it'll see the, G- the return of Jesus and all that, you know. Right. And the K Street politicians. I, I think I've the heard family. A, a little bit of that rhetoric as far as make America great again about uh, amoral liberals who are supposedly. That's right. That's one of their talking points. And, yeah, that's right. And. and Engaging in homosexuality yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, very good. That's a very good point. And that right there is targeted right at the, the Christian base, you know, the Christian fundamentalisms. Yeah. Because they literally said, you know, if you look at documentaries, there's different documentaries of it. They interviewed them, but they say they held their noses because they didn't like Trump, but they agreed to go along with it because, you know, hey, for the party, you know what I mean? Right. Um, but... <clears throat> So they made kind of a Faustian bargain. But, yeah. But the 74 million, I say, have a valid point about the emasculation of men because it is even corroborated when I talk to this uh, fellow acquaintance from the Bay Area, right? Yeah. And his complaint was about Black Lives Matter. Okay. And he grew up in activism in the Oakland Bay Area and he was there. You know what I mean? People even forgot about Oscar Grant now. Yeah. People people think it all started with George Floyd, for example. Right, right. You know what I mean? Or even Tamir Rice. You know what I mean? But no, this goes way back to like Oscar Grant. We go way back to like the Kenneth Harding shooting. Yeah. When Kenneth Harding was um running from was- a from a bus fare for like two dollars and he was running and then they shot him in the back for a two dollar bus fare or something like that. Uh-huh. And what was crazy was we watched the videos of that and and um you can see in the videos he's bleeding out and the video is playing for like seven minutes, eight minutes, nine minutes and he's just bleeding out and he's, and he's like trying to lift up his head and he's trying to gasp for air and he's on the ground on his stomach. The police r- had a ring around him yeah. and they blocked people from trying to help him. Ah, okay. And that was like the outrage that like I thought to myself, this, this is different. So in essence, in that situation... This is inquisitory. This is showing the public... Yeah, this is what we do. Yeah. So shut the fuck up. So yeah. So I, um, I want to go back to a couple of terms I, I heard in, in social studies in high school. Uh, de facto, 
law and uh, what's the other one um uh so yeah it's so basically there's, yeah there's, there's in practice it, and in written law de jure and de facto yeah so de jure written, i believe is uh by law and de facto is like by practice yeah so what's written in the laws isn't that they're going to let this guy die but in practice they are essentially being the judge juror and executioner yeah yeah <clears throat> so that was that was far out but anyway his critique uh local barrier activist is that black lives matter um, you know, is basically emasculating black men, you know, mm. and uh, yeah. there's an issue of homosexuality as well. So uh, how does how does he uh, what what is the point that he's making, or what how how is Black Lives Matter emasculating? Men? We'll we'll have to ask him. We'll okay. have to see if he agrees to come on and you know elaborate on that. Um, I can only speculate because I only had a brief conversation, and um, but anyway. I want to relate an experience of listening to Pacific Radio recently because I started blogging and critiquing, uh, you know, white liberals on KPFA and Pacific Radio because uh, for years we have noticed that they block, they seem to block grassroots activists. Okay. And so I started critiquing them on the blog and it seemed like... Um, so what would be a it seemed like they were uh, they were reading this right it well, seemed like they were reading this uh-huh. I'm not sure um my, my my family tells me it's wishful thinking you know uh whatever uh but then we notice uh that there are we notice now this black agenda report now black agenda report was always on uh living room but they they had this poet they didn't have the Glenn Ford on there to get come some radical critique of the, the Democrat Party. No, they brought a poet, dude. Okay, so I, who's like talking about his feelings? So the poetry is in a way a little emasculating. Yeah, they don't bring like a you know a fiery speaker a, Malcolm X type. They yeah. bring some guy who's sitting here, Daniel, crying on the radio they about his feelings. They don't bring a stern speaker or uh, inflammatory or any any anywhere in that spectrum of. Right. Of seriousness. Right. Now, that was me listening to Pacific Radio last week. And that corroborates the critique that I heard from this person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Another thing was was my own memories. My own memories of what happened and, being on, and, and the stuff that was reported on KPFA. Uh, like, I remember there was this one guy that was on KPFA. His name was J.R., and then he had the most legit reporting. And then all of a sudden he was gone. And then there was this other lady named Cap Brooks came on. Uh-huh. I didn't know what happened to that guy, JR. I would like to get in touch with him and see, you know, maybe ask him what happened. You know, I think that would be a yeah. really great podcast. Right. Um, but. Uh, and then she started working with Brian Edwards Teeker, you know, in the morning show. And that dude was always like suspicious to me because he's super sharp yeah. but then he can never apply his analysis or his analytical skills to 
like the Democrat Party. Yeah. Oh, the two party system. Right. You know what I mean? He's super analytical about everything, but except this one thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, well, there's one thing you can't touch, though. Yeah. So that tells me he's a partisan. And then I already knew from my experiences from before, from my first volunteering there from 2007, running for the board in 2010, and then knowing tons of people. I mean, I've been going to KPFA since I was a teenager. I used to read poetry. Yeah, what I was about to say is, is that when, when I was a high schooler there, I, I knew La Onda Bajita when, and all those guys. Yeah. I, I've been out of the game, uh, the political game for a long time, I guess. And uh, But I remember uh, it was probably the early 2000s or even in the late 90s where we saw this process of, uh, of I don't know, taking the teeth out of this Pacifica radio station. Yeah, out of KPFA. That, that was beginning back yeah. then and maybe it was beginning before that but that was just we were the, our generation to be there at that time yeah because when I used to listen to KPFA in the 90s they were real activists on the radio but, uh, what, what, that talked about activist strategy would it be totally uh, off base to say that maybe this whole radio radio thing is obsolete now no no, no. radio is more alive than ever it's called podcasting now well, that's what I'm saying. Radio has multiplied. What I'm saying that the, would you say this that that we should give up putting, terrestrial radio? Well, no, 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 never. But I mean, uh, it seems like a, a lot of uh, cards are being pushed onto this. I mean, sure, it's probably a good thing to keep uh, terrestrial radio, as you would say, um, alive. I'm I'm focused on free speech radio. At Lumpen Proletariat, we're focused on free speech radio. You know, because we care about free speech radio. Yeah. Everybody else tells me, even Abby Martin told me, you know, like, I don't know if I should say this. Like, I hope you forgive me, Abby. But even she said, fuck KPFA. Well, yeah, what I'm you saying know what I mean? is because that she it... saw like how stuck I was on this whole thing. Like, we have to fight to save KPFA. And she was like, man, like, we just need to move on. You know what I mean? She moved on. She went to RT. You know what yeah, I mean? What, I, what I'm saying is that it, isn't she it... invited me over there, too. But it, I had to go somewhere else. Isn't it possible that uh, designated radio stations are... A little obsolete now in what way because we have all these other outputs like podcasts like we're doing here then why is the enemy using it nah, I don't know. then why well, is the enemy trying to capture free speech radio well here's, here's because it's still very powerful here's something i want to get out here is that like um look at the 74 million people voted for for trump or you know i'm sure they're not all extremists but they do seem to have a network going pretty well and they seem to be communicating pretty well and they organize pretty well. And my, my, what I'm saying is why can't the other side do that? They had the CIA on their side. I guess that is. 85% of the news stories, according to Dr. Peter Phillips, sociologist, 85 to 90% of the news stories that come through TV are CIA baked. Okay. Yeah. Are you kidding me? You think they're not touching the podcasts? This morning, I looked at my uh, YouTube algorithm feed, uh -huh. and there's like a little banner that tries to push stuff on me that I don't really care about, right? And you can scan left to right on it, right? Uh -huh. And it was all Dr. Peter Fauci. And it was like Dr. Peter Fauci on Joe Blow's podcast, Dr. Peter Fauci on this guy's yeah, little he's, website. He's, he's, he's made his rounds since they're doing uh, the little, the, the 30,000 30, <laughs> followers. Uh -huh. They know this is where it's at. The little podcasters that barely have 30,000 followers, you know, yeah. 100,000. Yeah. If they get a one that has a, a 100, 300, 500,000 or a million, they're happy. If they get yeah. Joe Rogan, they're happy. Right. That's like, oh, oh, oh you know? Yeah. 
But they, they're even Fauci is sitting there on the little Joe Blow's what's his name's podcast or well, a little YouTube channel or well, whatever. That's where it's at. So now. this is where it's at. I mean, yeah. it's been where it's at. Yeah. You know, like I remember listening to KPFA Against the Grain was one of the first shows that was talking about. Yeah, we're also on podcast mode, you know, or whatever. See, um, since you mentioned uh, the CIA bakes up all these stories and, and they have the power of the uh, the radio and the and the mainstream TV. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking about something since that January 6th incident is that uh, in a society where, um, where, as you say, racism is baked into the cake, why does it surprise you that a lot of people who stormed the Capitol were military and are people who are the most dedicated they can be to, to our country when the country is built on that say, sort of racism, systemic racism? And oppression. Why does it surprise anybody that the military, that a lot of military personnel, police personnel, went over there to storm the Capitol? And a lot of people who aren't even broke, they're just, they're venture capitalists, they're, they're successful people. I don't know. I don't think it should be a surprise at all. Well, I mean, we can talk about what should and shouldn't be, but... Yeah. Well, I guess I, I just know. want to I don't, that's, I don't know where that's going to take us. Yeah. That might not take us anywhere. Well, okay. So I guess we can, uh, we can agree that, um, that the CIA or our government is generally on the side of that side, which is pushing fascism, right? I mean, we can speculate that, but. It's pretty obvious to people that are paying attention, you know, what's going on. You know what I mean? Like Bob Dylan's song, you know what I mean? We don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind yeah, blows. You and, know what and I mean? Maybe it's as not, far back as the 60s, they knew. You know what I yeah. mean? And maybe it's not so much that it's towards fascism, it's that it's towards profits, right? I mean, what you're getting at is like, who really runs things in this country? Yeah. You know, Noam Chomsky asked that question. And then Dr. Peter Phillips' uh, new book, Giants, The Global Elite. Uh, has a quotation from Noam Chomsky on the cover. You know, Noam Chomsky is praising his new book. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, about that question, who really runs the world? Well, in that book, Giants, uh, Dr. Peter Phillips gets into who really runs it. You know, he gets into the 17 uh, big money managers that manage the wealth of, like, the ruling class of the world. But um, we've known this. Americans have known about the military-industrial complex since the farewell address of Eisenhower, right? He went before the American public and said, we have a problem, people. The military-industrial complex is looking more powerful than than the rest of the government. And if we're not careful, they're going to take over the government. Yeah. And on January 6th, it looked like they were finally going to do it. So it's not that, like, I was surprised, but... I was blown away by how bad we really are. So it was a wake-up call. January 6th was a wake-up call to many people for many different reasons. For me personally, it was a wake-up call because I already knew that the CIA had had a long global war against the left since at least the 70s. Right. I already knew that the government had killed Fred Hampton. You know, I already knew that the government, that Martin Luther King was not dead when he arrived at the hospital. Uh-huh. 
and that according to uh, deposition, yeah, I think I've heard something. You know, uh, we refer people on my website to Dr. William uh, Pepper's book, An Active State. You know, and the plot to kill King. Uh-huh. Um, from sworn depositions, nurses saw men in suits come in and go into the room where Dr. King was alive. I gotta, I gotta hit that chicken. And they smother him with. Yeah. Sorry. So they enter into, so they enter into the room, and basically, according to. Eyewitness reports, King here, right? They smothered Dr. King with pillows. Okay, yeah. And according to, you know, sworn statements uh, under oath, you know, they say, you know, they spit on him, mm. you know, and they say, stop working on that nigger, you know, let him die. That sounds about right for the time. And, but this should be public knowledge. Right. Nobody cares, though. But it's not. Everybody celebrates Dr. King Day. And they don't care about this this information. Yeah. To me, it's an insult to his memory to celebrate his life, and you don't even care about taking time on his birthday to study what really happened uh, in his assassination. To read the book of the attorney that was a family friend of the King family. Family. Fr- he was a friend of Dr. King, uh-huh. William Pepper, and nobody cares about this information, right? Okay. So. So we're digressing like crazy, but all I want to like, there is a point to the changes that are happening socially and culturally in society, right? We are being driven indoors. You can no longer really be outside anymore. Um, There were gang injunctions. If there was three or four more people of color gathering together in a corner, then you were considered a gang. When I was in high school, back in the early 90s, I was on a list of a gang. I was pulled over and they pulled out a big paper and a list in my 63 Chevy Impala. You were blacklisted. And they said, no, you're part of the Norte. You know, they said, you're part of the West Side. We've seen, they had, they had, they had pictures of me probably. Yeah. They were, they had surveillance. They put surveillance cameras in our, in our hood and everything. And I said, I'm not in a, you don't know that, you know. But they, they they already had you labeled that way, right? So then the the public life has been criminalized, you know. I want to tell young people that when I was a teenager, I used to walk around San Mateo and I would walk through the King Center. And all I had to worry about was maybe some black kids starting fights with me or Tongan kids, Pacific Islanders, because there was ethnic conflicts. You yeah, know? And there, I was, was always a, small. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of uh, racial tension. But uh, I didn't worry about the time. cops. Yeah. I didn't worry about the cops. And then in 1991, I believe, uh, Rodney King was beat. And then it was caught on video. And we knew, I knew since I was a kid that cops were racist. Because, yeah. because of just opening my eyes and you know hanging around the King Center, around the black side of town, uh, where some of my Hispanics, also the Hispanic side of town, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, I grew up like on the border of like the of the white area. Right. And um I but I would walk over to the more poor section because that's where my friends were, that's where the fun was, and that's where and I could walk through San Mateo and there would be people all over all the streets. Yeah. And now 
Uh, I've been in the barrier recently, and it is dead. Well, not just that. There are is no that, young people. Is that it's it's also different different people there. It's it's people who aren't from California even. It's, it's, yeah. Tell 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 yeah, us yeah. tell us a little bit about like what it's like now. I mean, um, back when I was there, um, there was a uh, people who lived in San Mateo, where their parents were from San Mateo, <coughs> and now. Uh, and it was, before, well, I guess this uh, whole uh, Silicon Valley thing just sort of uh, gentrified the entire peninsula. Although it was always a, a fairly well-off area. Um, <clears throat> and many will see why that is, because uh, you know, the Bay Area is a beautiful place geographically. Um, but yes, yeah, since the influx of, uh, of tech people coming from all over the country, Slowly but surely, uh, the uh, the original residents got pushed out. And uh, when I go back to the peninsula, it's not the same people that were there before. It's all people from other areas, uh, tech people, uh, not even working class people really, except for the little pockets of what used to be what we call the ghetto of, of you know, San Mateo or whatever, or Road City, those areas. Um, but for the most part, it's, they're transient people, not that they're broke or, or, or homeless. They're, they're there to get money while the tech boom is going. And then, you know, maybe they'll stick around and their kids will live here, but there's no sense of, uh, of being from a certain place. Yeah. There's no established families that are going to be permanent, that are going to be there for the long stretch. Yeah. Like, for the most part. I mean, there are, but it's a dramatic transformation that's happening in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, I guess a lot of the tech companies are have abandoned Silicon Valley for They're the most out, part. Yeah. They're moving out. They're moving out. So that's different. But I want to tell young people that, like, when I was a kid in the 80s, the barrier was vibrant. There were young people everywhere that drove cars, teenagers. There were there was cultural diversity. You had yeah. the skaters. Yeah. You had the preppies. You had the you know the hip hop heads. You had the stoners. The the were the Metallica, their Black Sabbath, and, and I, I had you no had idea the, the high energy Hispanics. You know, with their you know disco music or whatever. The I, DJs. I had no idea that uh, most other places in the country you don't see people mixed together, races. <laughs> I, I went to go visit my cousins in Chicago, and it was like yeah. black neighborhood, Latin neighborhood, yeah. white neighborhood. Yeah. I was like, whoa, this is like straight up. California was more mixed. Yeah. More mixed. It, it, but it was still it, racial tensions, you know. But, I know that, but I thought it was fairly the norm. But it was more mixed. But, yeah, we thought, but yeah. It, you go 70 miles in any direction, that's not the way it is. Yeah, you would think. Uh, but I, I, I was unaware of that. That's right. If you live in the barrier, you're kind of in a little bubble of like kind of progressive you know bubble it, in a way a utopian illusion <laughs> yeah where people get along you know what i mean and they're not like you know ethnocentric and thinking their ethnicity is better than the other one or whatever but so like my memories of the barrier are of um vibrant culture and life and there were 
I mean, the barrier was awesome. You know, there was like, you can see the punk rock shows, the yeah. hip hop shows, everything. There was like the raves, you know, there was the nightclubs, you know. And then, you know, there was a period where like the Bay Guardian was reporting on how like the nightclubs were being closed down. Uh, the nightlife was being attacked. There was less nightlife. You right. know what I mean? Uh, we can go back earlier. There was the cruising. The cruising was outlawed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was awesome. Yeah, we it was culture. Before, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I wanted a lowrider, yeah. you know? So my first car when I was 16 was a 63 Chevy Impala. I saved up when I was in like middle school cleaning this uh, plumbing office in the weekends to save money. Which, but which there was all say, this stuff going which, on, which but it all is, got shut down. Yeah. So going back to the... So it's a police the, state now. The loss of the cultural wars. <clears throat> um. What can you say that really means? Alexa O'Brien. So what that means is, is that like if we read uh, Dr. Peter Dale Scott, who wrote the book on the American deep state and uh, deep politics and the assassination of JFK, and he's probably done some of the best work on all of that type of stuff. Yeah. And legit, right? Um, anyway, he talks about how like when uh, politics start to break down, like you have culture wars okay you know all you have is people that are basically fighting over trivial stuff that doesn't really have any real political change or, okay. you know what i mean so like you're arguing over like you know gay people or like you know so would you say that culture like, like the right-wing culture like versus the liberals complaining about the loss of masculinity in a society would that be one of those things yeah exactly okay. yeah because let's say, you know, you vote for Trump and Trump's going to say, yeah, this is what it means to be a man. What does that change to the economy or to the laws or to your job or to your wages? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. like when the Southern strategy is basically selling white privilege to white people, you know, like, yeah, you know, yeah. like make you feel good because white people would fear that their daughters might, you know, marry a black guy or something, you know what I mean? Or like yeah. some, you know, racist uh, trope then that's that you that's uh, a vulnerability of white people who have a fear of blacks or have some racism or stereotypes or whatever that politicians can exploit right they can play up that that little bit of prejudice that you have and make it bigger yeah you know so so uh would would this be uh, uh what i'm about to say uh is would it be uh, an, uh, an effect of losing the cultural wars like here's here's something um that i'm about to say to you is a uh, is that the 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 memory that is being lost the memory is being lost Let of me, how we lived how people lived in the 80s how yeah. people lived in the 70s yeah it is and how and how kids today or adults today don't know about how we lived yeah in the past yeah. and even the recent past 20 years ago exactly that's exactly right that's exactly the point, you know, that we're forgetting that. Yeah. Um, but uh, and, and I but guess... to close the point on the culture wars real quick, uh -huh. if you can hold that thought for yeah. a second. The, the point about the culture wars is that politics is when you, you have a political, uh, a political agenda uh -huh. and you engage in political decision making right. to achieve that agenda. And what's politics? Politics is nothing more than decision making which affects a group. Okay. That's all politics is. Yeah. 
if you're engaging in discussion that's going to uh, come to some conclusion that says this is what should be done and that's a decision that's going to affect a group, that's politics. That's all it is. Okay. So all it is is decision-making that affects a collective, right? Right. But when that process of politics, of decision-making that affects a group, when that breaks down, then you have culture wars. So you think so that people that are engaging in culture wars think that they're engaging in politics. Oh. But they're not. But they're not. Yeah. But they're so right wingers. They're chasing a red herring, which is uh, exactly. That's yeah. that's that's the point. It's it's not even a uh, um, a relevant or pertinent point. You're just spinning your wheels. Yeah. You're you're not getting anywhere. You're like, and you're okay. stuck in the mud. You know what I mean? Okay. And the politicians got you thinking that you're actually doing something. Right. And that's what identity politics is about also, right. you know. Um, but so when the politicians get the right-wingers to hate the, the anti-war Vietnam protesters and then they hate them and they hate them and they're hating each other and I hate your long hair. Oh, well, I hate your fascist short hair and then, you know, you Nazis, you know, whatever. You guys don't know. Oh, you just you just abuse my mom or you just abuse my parents, you know, whatever. Like, right. you know, you old caveman, wife beater, t-shirt wearing, whatever, right? Yeah. And there's that animosity. There that There's no political win out of that conflict, you yeah, know? Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. So, the what... I think Alexa O'Brien was trying to tell us back in the 2011, 2012 days of the Occupy Wall Street, the culture wars were over. Everyone lost. Mm. Is that while we have been fighting culturally against each other, the government already won. They have taken over the government. It's over. There's nothing we can do. You know what I mean? And at that time, Obama was in office. Yeah, yeah. And there was a mass protest against... uh, Wall Street greed. It was called the Occupy Wall Street movement. And there was this meme for the young people that weren't old enough to remember this that was about the 99%. And they were saying because 1% of the population has so much wealth that it's obscene, right? Yeah. We're the 99%. Like, forget that. You know, we want, like, you know, we want justice. So that was the whole thing of Occupy Wall Street, right? Yeah. Obama, you would think, would be totally for that. But no, Obama crushed that movement and destroyed the, that, that, that activism. Yeah. So that shows you that the will of the people doesn't matter. Even yeah, when you and, have Obama, and, you can't, and then you have a millions of people that it even becomes a global movement, the government still ignores you. So, so you're not engaging in so politics anymore. Obama was pretty much a standard uh, in the tradition of Clinton, neo- neoliberalist, right? Yeah. 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 <clears throat> and basically, <clears throat> what, what do we say neo- neoliberalism? Liberalism is like that's a uh, privatization, privatization is a short is a short way of looking at it, but it's just a it's a it's a version of capitalism. Okay, it's this version, this modern version of capitalism. Yeah, and so that really has nothing to do with culture or nothing masculinity no. or any of that stuff. It just has to do with making money oh. for the you know. I mean, you can say it has to do with like you know pussies in academia mm-hmm. that don't call out neoclassical economics for the bullshit that it is. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, you I, need to get like a fucking lumpen proletariat street fighter, like Malcolm X, with eighth grade education. You know who's been in street fights and fist fights. Yeah. And then you put them in academia, and then they see the bullshit and they call it out. Right. You know, but then they tell you, "Oh, you're not being professional." Right. You know what I mean? No. Yeah. I wanna, you're lying. I want to point out my experiences during. Um, we had eight years of Obama, right? Um, I was. Um, 
you know, working class wage wage worker with a with you know a young family, mm-hmm. and I can tell you that every year the financial system went down and down and down and down. Since what year? Um, I'd say about from like two thousand seven to like two thousand. Well, of course, I started making more money also. Yeah, from the mid two thousands. Yeah, two thousands like to the two thousand fifteens. Yeah, like an eight eight year period or something like that. But I can tell you that yeah, and and particularly um, when Obama was president, um, social benefits went down every year. The standard of living just kept going down, right? Uh, not just that, but the uh, um, welfare, uh, financial assistance from the, oh, from the government. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Because I see what because saying. I was in that economic bracket. Yeah, you were collecting uh, public assistance. Yeah, I mean, I, I worked forty hours or more. Right. No, but, there's no shame in that. But shit. but it wasn't enough to make to to have a house or to have you know no. a place to live in the Bay Area. No, it's not. Even back then, it wasn't. No, the the unemployment is just the crumbs what they yeah. give you. And I wasn't like a minimum wage worker. I was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Even when you got paid big, yeah, you yeah. still just end up getting crumbs. Yeah. 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 This is true. Our economy has been going down and down and down. You know what I mean? Yeah. But some people have been okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And as long as they're okay, you know, they don't see a problem. And yeah. because of the cultural perspectives that tell them that black and brown people are this and that. You know, they see the ghettos suffering, and then they just they just put it on the personal. You know, it's their it's their their immorality, their profligates, they're lazy. Yeah, it's their and, own and fault. I, I think there's somebody something that most people can relate to is uh, uh, look at the government or our, our our country as a metaphor for a job you're working at. You're not going to quit the job unless it gets really bad. I mean, if it's kind of okay and you're kind of getting by, <laughs> you're going to stay there, right? I'm gonna fight to make it unionized, <laughs> well, but you, you have to. But you have but to I'm, be, I'm, I'm trying to generalize and and, and, and relate most to, people, to yeah. most people. Most people, most people, yeah. They're they're not gonna or they're not gonna leave their girlfriend or boyfriend. Yeah, it, it be uh, you know they're, they <laughs> they have a few good nights, date nights and stuff, and uh, <clears throat> you know they fight you know maybe fifty percent of the time, <clears throat> but uh, until it gets really bad, yeah, they're not gonna leave it. That's because most people haven't heard the old proverb. Which says, it's better to live one day as a lion than a lifetime as a pecora. Mm. What the hell is a pecora? <laughs> what the hell is a pecora? Uh, that's the Italian word for sheep. Ah, oh, okay. That's random. Anyway, is yeah. It? Is it? It's exactly germane. It's better to live as a lion, even one day as a lion, than a, than a whole lifetime as a sheep. Going yeah. along, taking crumbs. Yes, yeah, so well, it's kind of like... Because uh, they're going to just... If you settle like, for like that... Like Pancho Villa's uh, quote, huh? Exactly. Or no, Zapata, wasn't it? Zapata. One of those two. So he says, better to <clears throat> better to live on your feet than to, to... No, to die on your feet than live on your knees. Yeah. Yeah. But we have to get to that point. Yeah. You know? And when you get to that point, you become revolutionary. Yeah. And once you become revolutionary, you never go back. Because... It doesn't make sense anymore. All right, let's let's start wrapping this up. Uh, All right, so let me define revolutionary before people think that it's violence, because we're committed to nonviolence in the tradition of Malcolm X and Dr. King. Right. 
But Dr. King said, we need a revolution of values. Okay. Yeah. So I say, be a revolutionary. Yeah. Sounds good. And I'll point out, um, before I say anything about bad about Christianity, uh, which most of the, our country is uh, part of, um, Jesus Christ is awesome. It's, it, it'll be great if you try to live like Jesus. But if you're going to fucking, uh, you know, be a bastard and think you can say 20 Hail Marys and, and in the end ask for forgiveness, um, I don't think that's really the right way to go. <laughs> the, church, gonna, the church started selling uh, selling forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you'd buy your way into heaven at the end. Uh, I don't. I don't believe. Hey, that's, my priest uh, said I'm forgiven, so I'm forgiven, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, they don't mention the part where you paid the priest. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> before I go on and mention that uh, Christianity has probably been responsible for millions of deaths over the course of two thousand years and um, subjugation. Um, yeah, I think uh, we need to try to respect each other's beliefs and not try to push our own beliefs in other people's faces. Well, I don't know. I would have to disagree with that. Because my conclusion is this. Dr. King and Malcolm X were right. And, you know, that means that we need to wake the folk up. Okay. We need to wake the folk up. And... If you stay inside, then nobody's going to know that there's a problem. So we have to go outside in big numbers. I agree with that. In nonviolent direct action. Okay. To draw attention to the issues at hand. And like Dr. King said, we have to be willing to be arrested. Yeah. For what we believe in. This is civil disobedience. Nonviolent direct action. Because we're saying this is wrong. You know, the killing of black and brown people with impunity is wrong. Yeah. You know, we're saying that the abuse of workers is wrong. Driving down their wages every year is wrong. Right. We're saying that capitalist social relations are wrong. Because by definition, the capitalist doesn't hire the worker unless he can exploit the worker. As Dr. Richard Wolff tells everybody over and over again. Right. We say all these things are wrong. And we say they are unacceptable. And that's why we want to put a stop to it. So we go out in the streets in mass numbers to make, to send the message. And sometimes in history, that's all you have is a picture of thousands of people out in the street because that cannot be denied. Right, right. And all the other books got denied, all the other economic theories. MMT, modern money theory, the job guarantee program, all that stuff got denied, you know, because it's complex. But you can't deny the simplicity of a million people out in the street saying something's wrong. Right. You cannot deny that. Yeah. Okay. And there is no way that I have heard a persuasive argument that this sort of mass mobilization of social change is going to, a violent, you know, approach is going to be helpful. The people on January 6th, they're right-wingers, so they're on the opposite end of the political spectrum. I disagree with them, but I agree with their right to express themselves politically. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they engaged in violence shows that violence doesn't work. Because it just gives the state an excuse to come down on you with, with their greater violence. Right. 
And afterwards, it gives them a pretext to legalize against your activities. So Dr. King was right. You know, we need a commitment to a nonviolent direct action of civil disobedience, you know, that that stops basically the wheels of capitalism and racist abuse of black and brown people. And until that happens, it's going to continue. Dr. King led people to do that, and he was taken out. Yeah. And then other people didn't didn't pick up the baton. So I want to put a question out there. Maybe we'll deal with this in the next episode. Yeah, we'll have to pick but, it up in the future. But, um, you think it's possible that that January 6th incident, <clears throat> if it was fueled by fascists, and, and like you say, violence, and because they turned violent, uh, the government was given the excuse to come down on this type of thing that they essentially have the potential to take us backwards from freedom and liberty. Yeah, I mean, all of the... That, 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 that incident was a cue to, to bring down more restrictions on the population. Exactly. Max Blumenthal has been talking about this. So um, in a sense... Everybody, like a lot of the you know, the, news the people, people have been talking about The people who did this. that on January 6th who believe in a more restrictive government, fascist government, were successful if the if the government enforces or uh, enacts more policies to uh, come down harder on dissent. Yeah, I mean my my take, you know, off the record. I mean, I'm just speculating, but it's basically, you know, it looked like a trap for Black Lives Matter in Antifa. Because it was hyped up, and you can see it on YouTube, and they were saying, "Yeah, we're gonna be there. We're gonna be there," and they're all mobilizing. So it was like telling who was saying they're gonna be there. Uh, sorry, the um, Trump loyalist types okay, okay. had been promoting their uh, event for the sixth for yeah. a long time, right. and there was a lot of excitement, and enthusiasm in their communities about that. Right. So they were hyping it up. In the past. Whenever there would be like some white supremacists or skinheads that were going to do some, some, they would pop up. The Antifa people would pop up right away to counter them. Right. There were some fights that happened in Sacramento uh, between Antifa and white supremacists. But back then, I mean, before Trump, they were rare, the white supremacists that went out. Right. After Trump, it exploded. Well, the doors were open. It exploded. I mean, you know, it, he just created the whole ecosphere for like, you know, white supremacy yeah. and bigotry and everything. Um, so like to me it looked like the way that it was hyped up it was like a big announcement to Antifa types and to Black Lives Matter types to show up to counter them they wanted them to be there yeah yeah so to me it was set up as a trap they didn't show up so all they had was just you know the hope that like some of those right wing nuts would like get violent and start breaking stuff so that then you can have some excuse that look you know yeah. But the state and, and I believe there's Cruz still, and Holly and all those people, Trump even. Yeah. I think they just wanted to manipulate, you know, working class people on the right and the left to get them to clash to start maybe a race war, some sort of pretext for Trump to call martial law. Yeah. And then once he calls martial law, he can invoke some sort of emergency powers that says that he needs to stay in power beyond right. the election and all that. Right. Um, but it didn't happen, you know, whatever, but um but yeah, that's what it looks like. Like it was designed to create a pretext for greater national security, right? Um, 
you know, extreme enforcement, you know. And okay. yeah, the gray zone, Max Lumenthal got into that as right. well. All they, right, so let's talk uh, about that. So yeah, let, let's leave with uh, these two questions uh, for for next time. Um, why do you suppose none of Antifa and uh, Black Lives Matter showed up that day? And were the uh, the people who uh, stormed the Capitol will they be successful in what they what they went there to do? Well, they went supposedly went there to uh, stop the uh, counting of the votes for the presidential election. But um, if the government enforces new, more restrictive um, policies on mass gatherings or, you know, protests or whatever, are they more successful? Did they succeed in their cause? Yeah, well, those questions are easy because the Antifa people said that they didn't go because they thought it was going to be dangerous. Okay. <laughs> Immediately after, you know, in the week after, you know, we heard all sorts of interviews and then we heard interviews from Antifa types. And they're like, and you know, those weren't Antifa people there if they were pretending to be Antifa because they didn't hand out little Skittles or whatever candy. We would always do that, you know, uh, little okay. little candies or whatever, <laughs> you know, so these are fakers or whatever. But, right. um, but yeah, so that's it. So um, one, one last question. Um, and I will leave uh, at, the audience of, of with these, of these, one last question from uh, Alex O'Brien. Of these three groups, uh, or, or I guess there are more than three groups, but of the right-wing groups, of the Antifa, and of the Black Lives Matter groups, who do you think is the most armed and most dangerous? Of the Antifa and Black Lives Matter and what? And the, the right-wing groups. Oh, well, of course, the right-wing groups, because they believe in, you know, uh, Second Amendment and all that. And <clears throat> for the most part, Black Lives Matter are... <clears throat> women huh right I don't know for the most part Black Lives Matter are women oh, okay. the the founders are women They're the three women were uh, in 2020 time person of the year uh, in the top you know in the list yeah of the influential people of the year or whatever and uh, it's not like I mean it's there's not a whole lot of like militant black male activism Mm, okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, like the militant activism that you see is going to be from women, yeah. like out there. Okay. For whatever reason, I don't know. Uh, that's how that's how I see it. But uh, yeah, but yeah. It might be because the government systematically kills them. But uh, yeah, there's that. Uh, um, but I did want to leave the last question that uh, Alexa O'Brien raised today in a tweet that she tweeted. I don't know if she tweeted at me or like at at a, at, at those of us who were responding to something that she said but she asked this question about like you know what has the government thought about what the role of prisons is going to be in this whole thing with january 6th because you have like a whole group of people that are going to be arrested um hundreds that are like these quote-unquote revolutionaries that believe in this cause of overthrowing this crooked government right you know what I mean? And what's what sort of scheme, like prison, you know, like... What ramifications will that have once uh, yeah, they I mean, enter into the... Uh, into the prison system. Prison system. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I mean, we already know they got the Aryan Nation in prison, you know, you got the, you know, the Border Brothers, and you got like, you know, you already got all these, you know, gangs by... Yeah. So... I would say that they would immediately join with the um, Aryan Nation, the white supremacists, you know, and then they're yeah. going to be reinforced and you got like a bunch of corrupt, you've got, you've got, a, I'm sure there's some corrupt guards and, you know, network of right. corruption going on. Right. It's, but that's, 
that's a question for the future, you know. Yeah, I mean? and but, that and that would be assuming that they were prosecuted, like anybody else would be prosecuted. Yeah, that they're gonna spend time. They're gonna yeah, do time. Yeah. But if they do time, they need to be separated. They need to separate them all far away, but there's not enough prisons to separate because them all. Is as, there? as we know, uh, the prison system is is category uh, uh, or they separate people by race. I, I don't know if is that's because the prisoners do that or because the uh, guards do that, but yeah, if you go into prison, you have to go to your race, right? Yeah. Unless you're going to be a a, a Bible guy, <laughs> a religious guy, yeah. But we're gonna have to come back to these issues yeah. because like I really want to communicate to the young people especially like what an awesome country this used to be like I mean I guess that's in- inaccurate well like I- there was just simply more liberty yeah yeah like we had liberty and you know a certain amount of freedom that doesn't exist anymore but there was still the core of white supremacy there, you know what I mean, that we ignored yeah. and we allowed to grow like a cancer. Right. But but it's different now. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and right now it's because of the pandemic that the, the streets look dead. But I'm telling you, like, it is really the Great Depression. The Bay Area, like Palo Alto does not look like nothing like Palo Alto and back in the days. No, it doesn't. Like Palo Alto is pathetic. Palo Alto used to be a wealthy town with Stanford University and people everywhere. I mean, like, what's that road up there on the top of the hill where the, you know, where the bicyclists used to go? Skyline Boulevard? Skyline Boulevard used to be jam-packed with... Alameda Los Colegas. No, Skyline Boulevard. Yeah. Used to be jam-packed with bicyclists and everything, you know what I mean? Like, and I mean, I know it's the pandemic right now, but even before the pandemic, it was already like this. I believe we got... This uh, the Bay Area got homogenized by tech. Yeah, and this other thing, like, and I know we're 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 out of time, but you know, and I want to come back to this if we have if we can, but yeah. like, I just don't see families in the Bay Area anymore. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. I see transient people that come and work for corporations and leave. Yeah, yeah. And when I was a kid, I remember that there were white kids and they had their own culture, you know what I mean? And there was Hispanics and there was black and brown that they would come into, you know, Menlo Park and Palo Alto from East Palo Alto and from the other side of Rose City. And there would be that culture mix. And you would see cars of young people. Well, it's over. Yeah. I don't see no youth culture, you know, in, in the peninsula anymore. Right. Maybe there's some youth culture in Oakland and the East Bay. But even there is probably gone too. And even Oakland got gentrified too. Yeah. Right? Most, a lot of like what used to be culture there got pushed out to Pittsburgh yeah. and Antioch and to Tracy and into the Central Valley, Modesto and Stockton. So I hope we can come back to this because like, yeah, we should. I see that the society's changed, you know what I mean? And it's starting to look very Orwellian, you know, like it's just yeah. this bleak, you yeah. know, emptiness and tumbleweeds and just like. Yeah, on, on that note, I think I would like to make an effort to promote some sort of uh, cultural renaissance or at least <laughs> at least uh, trying to bring uh, to the knowledge of, of our generation right now uh, 
the kind of lives that we lived and the culture that we had when we were growing up. And maybe every generation says that about the one that's right now, because they're older now, but uh, I believe uh, we should have some sort of thread that holds together uh, people from last century or this century. And I think there should be some recognition of, uh, like you're saying, uh, people coming together and uh, commingling and um, not being afraid to come out of a shell. Yeah, man. So anyway, um, I'm going to make an effort to promote that any way I can. Yeah. Even in the 90s, bro, it wasn't as good as the 60s. Well, that's what I'm saying. Every, every, and the 90s every generation were better says, than the 2000s. Yeah. Every generation so, says that they were, they were cooler than, the, than the, the one that's out now. But it's not that it was cooler. It's just that there was more freedom. Yeah. You know what I mean? But even in the 90s, I could see that there was more curfews. Right. There was less nightlife. Yeah. You know what I mean? There was less freedom. You know, you couldn't pull over like you used to be able to. Yeah. You know? And it's just like, it's a trip. Like, I mean, Jack Kerouac on the road. Forget it. Right. You know, like... So like I want people to like I want us to come back to this and then just think about like the changes that have happened in America and how like there was a certain amount of freedom like you can go back even further like hobos can 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 hop trains yeah that got shut down like like I mean what's the harm you know like I go back to Bob Marley's song you know why can't we roam the open country yeah you know what I mean but you know yeah, I'm okay, repeating so, myself so yeah so once once thank you if, so much if this pandemic gets finished. Um, Hopefully, the general population go back to looking at each other face to face and talking to each other. Thank you for joining me, uh, Mr. Lumpen Proletariat. Catch him on lumpenproletariat.org. And uh, thanks for being here.